and you go to you go put in Glasgow the magical cow into any into Gluhistahali and you'll find the stories from every parish every county everyone knew about this magical cow and what did the magical cow do she appeared out of nowhere and she would graze you immediately knew which field she was grazing because she left that field greener and more lush and more with more variety of different herbs and wild plants and grasses than anywhere else it was a gift and she would give unlimited milk to anybody who wanted it Un, anyone could come and you would get unlimited milk okay so she was the bounty she's represented the bounty of the goddess of the land both re-fertilizing the land and making the land hold but also giving of herself endlessly until a man came a man a foreigner nomadic man a man from somewhere else just like you know you're saying there's a lot of dark ideas about greed and capitalism we know they arrived in to Ireland we know how they arrived in they arrived into Dublin and Belfast they arrived into this new imperialist colonial mind that came in the you know 18th 19th century and there's no blame that's just what happened in the world is you know we all went down this way of increase in mass but anyway so the the story that was told for thousands of years and was still told regularly in every community or was known in the 1930s says the man the nomadic man comes in and he says uh, that everyone in the local communities look at our magical cow she gives unlimited milk to anyone who ever wants it the poor the sick the, 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 the everyone who gets it she gives it for free and he says oh well I bet you he says I have a vessel that she couldn't fill and they all say of course no she you couldn't couldn't she'll give it to anyone she's unlimited and he says no no I bet you and he's scheming greedy you know man and uh, but they know they're so in love of the bounty of their cow that they said that couldn't happen so he says well I'll wager you he says let me see if I can find a vessel that she'll never fill and so they agree because they have such confidence in the unlimitedness that they're not they're never going to take too much from the cow but they know she'll always be there when they want it so you know the, see, he comes along with the sieve and he gets the sieve and he puts the sieve under the cow and he milks the cow and the milk flows and he milks the cow and it flows and it flows it all flows through the sieve and it flows and it flows and it washes down the river the man, the hills and the mountains it washes down the rivers um I'm just I might have told you this story at the of our last happy pair too no, I, can't I remember. love this oh, yeah, it's and it flows it flows it flows through until the whole land is awash with the milk and eventually she the, the poor glass if the poor cow gets tired and um she has uh there's very little milk left to her and eventually the milk turns to blood and oh. she he keeps on squeezing, keeps on blood comes out of her and eventually she just falls in a dead heap of just her skin and her bones oh. on the ground. And the man is victorious. You see, I showed you, he says, you see, I showed you, I could, I beat that magic cow and the cow dies, you know? And it's, this is, as I said, it was in every community as a message to every community, respect the sources of your food, honor them, do not exploit them, do not overuse, just use what you need. Hi, how are you? Welcome to the Happy Bear Podcast. We're delighted to have you. We genuinely are. Steve Thank here. You. Dave here. And Sarah. Yeah, and, and little and Ralph. Ralph. And, and Ralph. Ralph. And uh, yeah, thanks for pressing the button. We're delighted. You've got a great show for it to you today. We really, really do. Yeah. How are you guys doing? Uh, yeah, great. Yeah, full of lentils. We loads of like lovely lentils. I like lentils your new too. expedition playing with pressure cookers. Uh, well, I'm playing with, I, I'm, I'm, I'm naturally a lazy chef. Like I'm really lazy. Stephen always wants, like not always because he's wonderful and he's better than me at cooking. So I'm just saying that <laughs> as a precursor. But he, he kind of tends to over complicate and just, and like sometimes they end up with 25 ingredients for a recipe. Whereas I'm like, just, I want less than 10 ingredients. I want to take me less than 20 minutes. I'm a lazy chef. So I'm on this expedition of creating lazy recipes for lazy people. Not so much for lazy people, but I think for everybody. <laughs> for so, busy people. So I've got an electric yeah. pressure cooker and I'm like giving myself 15 minutes to chop it in while I'm making my breakfast and then it cooks the lunch for everyone. And we've had them the last number of days here. We'll be sitting around the studio actually all of us having lunch. Oh, yeah, so it's, it's real like no oil, like just 
no oil, like foods. loads of beans and lentils and veg. It's gorgeous and like, food. Really healthy. And you only even put one spice in to keep it simple. Oh, I keep it really simple, yeah. yeah. Um, so you know the way, like, you both are chefs, you're both... Um, uh, were ex-pro golfers, ex-pro rugby players, both ex-models, both. Is there anything that like you don't both have uh, Well, we had different exes. <laughs> <laughs> we did nice. have different exes. We're both appalling singers. I'm left hand and he's right hand, so that's kind of a good ah, distinction. there you yeah. go. And uh, and he was he used to get better grades at me and Matt's. I don't know if he was better than me, but he used oh. to get better grades at me. Well, I found <laughs> out yes, last night you told me that you had braces and you didn't. Yeah, that's yeah, something yeah. different. And I used to be better at English. Oh, that's, that's well, nice. I still am because he's am. kind of dyslexic. <laughs> <laughs> not, not like registered and dyslexic. How many languages do you speak? I think about 15 between us. <laughs> no, no, I'm only joking. Like but it depends on speak. Like speak yeah. is like we are not fluent in them, just to clarify that. Yeah. But we could have a conversation in lots of languages with different people, you know. So the conversation might be littered with mistakes as well. <laughs> but we are well able, like we love people. So we've always been embracing languages. I think Steve's got like six or seven and I've got like four or five or something. Yeah, what languages do you have? Uh, English, Irish, tell me up the kind Yeah. Uh, my wife's Polish, so I can speak Polish. I can speak Spanish. I can speak French. I can speak Portuguese. I can speak pretty crap German. Yeah. So, so few, like, yeah. Uh, but they're like, there some of them are rougher than others. But should we can have a go at? Life? And I think like, the more you learn one, the more you kind of have a a bigger toolbox to to learn how to use another one. Like my mom, my mom's Swedish, and I think she's got a different personality mm. when she speaks Swedish to when she speaks yeah. English. Do you find, do you know the language as well enough to have a different personality? In Spanish, I have a different personality. Oh. <laughs> Spanish is much more, like it's much more gregarious, much yeah. more social. And even how you speak is so different. Play, it's like, more playful. It's certainly, I'm more, all my associations to language are playful and fun. And like our, my Spanish friends have always been just larger than life and they love la marcha. Like they love just living on the street and like just, you know, the party of life, like the rollos of La vida and whatever, you yeah. know, it's just beautiful. Whereas yeah. if you're going to give out to someone, Polish is an amazing language for that. And yeah. if you want to give my kitchens for a manual, German is world class. <laughs> so precise. <laughs> well, I find even like, because I speak uh, Swedish because my mum and uh, I, my intentions was to just speak Swedish to, or to just speak English to Ralph. But when he's upset or crying or anything, I naturally just start speaking Swedish, which is got, wow. so it must be because the material. Are you going to speak more thing, Swedish to him or no? Yeah, I definitely will. I won't be rigid. I won't just speak one. Because they say that in order to teach a kid another language, you have to dedicate. Oh, like, 100%. Justina, yeah. like, my wife only speaks Polish to our kids. Yeah. Like, never speaks English. And I won't do that because my, yeah, my personality is more developed in English. <laughs> more developed, yeah. I like that. <laughs> it is. You know, I think my, like, vocabulary kind of cuts off at around a teenager's mark. And uh, I couldn't have, like, a political conversation in no. Swedish. I'd be lost. I could have a really crap political conversation in Spanish, like really crap. In my yeah, last, I like, like him. No, I don't like him. Minutes. He's very good. I like yeah, his hair. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Lovely suit. Does he have brothers and sisters? I'm not quite. Uh, well, on that joke. note, we're uh, talking today to yeah, the yeah, today, today we're talking to Monko McGann and he is... He's a friend of ours and an absolute legend. I love, glorious I love, I love, human. So, so this is our second podcast with Monko and I love that the... the, the I, well, when, he, when we first had him on, he told us stories about how... When he was going through college, he felt like if I go get a conventional career path, I'm going to be broken. So society's going to break me. I need to carve my own way because he's such a magical creature that literally believes in like all the good in life. Like he's like this just wonderful magic. He's like human. a five year old in like a 50 year old's body. 
Yeah. Kind of is. Like, he's got that but just absolutely... In terms of wonder and magic. Exuberance and curiosity for life. Like, so he's he's an incredible advocate for the Irish language. He's written lots of books. He's, he's a best-selling he's a, author. He's, nat- he's an, a, he, um, he really is a great proponent of the Irish language and culture and history and mythology. He kind of makes you feel like fairies and stuff are real, doesn't he? He really, really they does. Are. Yeah. Like, I believe they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And his latest book... <laughs> His latest book is Let the Land Speak, which is a beautiful book about, you know, where certainly in Ireland, like he's very rooted into Ireland and Irish culture. And he's he's getting back to where is the difference between history versus mythology and where does one stop and one end? And he goes through so much. And how, can we, how can we listen to the landscape talk and how do we hear it and how can we hear the stories, the landscape from the landscape? Yeah, so that sounds a bit ephemeral, a bit crazy, but he is he is a wonder, and you are in for a treat, genuinely. And which one makes me think? Remember that language? Uh, uh, what's it called? Espionage or oh, Esperanza? Esperanza, uh, like oh, yeah. just thinking he he like mankind's purely about the richness of a mm. language and the culture, right? I'm still learning Irish, nearly two and a half years. We must. And it. Irish is Irish is three thousand years yeah. old, and English is only about eight hundred years so old. So something like esp- uh, Esperanza, Esperanza. Like, would you be totally against that then? Or I have no idea. I don't know anything about it. It sounds like great fun. It's the universal language that they were developing that's really basic or simple or something. I think yeah. it's great, great to have. I think it's really fun. I don't think it ever play. cut off, took off. It's a bit like the keyboards. There's like a, a much quicker, easier keyboard to use, but and then the Q W E or T Y. QWERTY. 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 Anyway, we're going off and gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for joining us. We are extremely grateful for your time and attention. And we give you a wonderful, inspiring human and just a great Glorious man who we love dearly called Monkle McGann. Enjoy. So hello and welcome and we're delighted to have you here today. Uh, yeah, welcome to anyone who's joining live. We're honoured to have you. And we've got a very special guest here today in studio. A dear friend, someone who we are very much akin with, someone who we very much uh, consider family. The wonderful, the legend, Moncon McGann. Moncon is a journalist, he's a writer, he's a, a magic human. He's, he's is, a, is part ephemeral, part human, part elf, part magical fairy. Part uh, hobbit, like he's just a glorious human. And a revolutionary in many ways. Yeah, there he is there. There's the wonderful ah. Moncon McGann. Hello. Look, the only way we're going to add edge to this podcast now is if we don't agree. If you say we're very much on the same page, we all agree. We need to end this podcast being like... With Jeopardy. Yeah. You want Jeopardy? Okay. What's that? What's Jeopardy? Jeopardy friction. Will they do it? Will they won't? Oh right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. We should be trying to diverge as much as possible because you know okay, the big danger. Okay. Fine. Points of friction. Okay. Yeah. Points of friction. Okay, well, you start. You say something mean to us first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, de- definitely. There's some. The thing I'm really aware of immediately is the three male voices, and I am so sick. This is like being 300 years, probably a thousand years of male voices. You know, I do every time I clock myself. First, myself talking as another bloody male, constantly talking, which is what I do. <laughs> you are unfortunate. You by nature come as a pair. So there's two males always, and it's not your fault. You know, there's just more. Like I'm so aware of me and worried that I'm just there's too much male, too much masculinity with me taking up airways or taking up room in the space in the room, and you're double that. But you're definitely you're not someone who I'd consider a but deeply no. masculine. Like you know, and, we and all I, have the masculine and the feminine, and yeah, you yeah. are you're someone who walks the balance. You're a soft, gentle, kind. Gentleman. Man. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I, I think that's it. I think we need to move beyond the male and the female to mm-hmm. more the masculine and the feminine because you can be male and have a voice for, for the feminine. And similarly, you can be a female and have a voice for the masculine. I agree. I know. But I'm so aware when I'm listening to all 
podcasts and there's just so many men talking, even when we're talking about the, the women, like Aubrey Marcus or something and someone else. And we'll all just talk about femininity and yeah. constantly for hours and hours. And I, it, you're right, there's no solution at the moment, but it is this because we're in this tricky time. We are all waking up to how us as men felt the right to talk as much as we want. As I thought it was to. fascinating where you were talking. I was listening to you talk at Blind Boy mm. and you were talking about how the story of the River Shannon, you were talking about how historically, this is a, sto- a myth from back, you know, millennium, I think it was, I can't remember the year, yeah. uh, but where in essence the story was where this young girl, like where time wasn't linear, time was circular. So although in the story she was a young lady, she was also an older witch. And in the story, the idea was that she was, she was drowned by the well. She went to the well as a poet to become a much better, you know, and enlightened her to reach, mm-hmm. um, Nirvana to to reach Nirvana to reach mm-hmm. self actualization and she reached it but then she got drowned by that and that was the idea when you demystified it was that in essence it was the male kind of suppressing the female so the male the leaders of the town would go and it was kind of almost like a story to kind of go any women who tries to get uppity we're gonna you're gonna get suppressed which is awful like which, but it's isn't it just anyway yeah. Yeah, you know, you're, you're so right. And for me, like, again, these realizations are coming to all of us, I suppose, or particularly to me at the moment. And I'm getting so excited about them. The minute I see, oh, yeah, that was another idea of actually there having been this woman, female voice or, fe- or female energy or female agenda that was then uh, crushed under foot. And I presume maybe women are that female consciousness. It's just saying, oh, are you only waking up to this now? <laughs> like, what's so great? But it's just... Me, I suppose, and others, we're only realizing all so much of our mythology, so much of our culture, so much of our past was based on the land, obviously. And and the land was this female goddess. And that wasn't just in Ireland. That was all around the world. Mm. Um, So, yeah, it's a time where because these realizations are for me so new, I'm just being bowled over by them. In Peru, you've got Pachamama. You know, every time you have a drink of some sort, whether it's water or alcohol or whatever, you always gave kind of 20% to Pachamama, which Mm. was a kind of. Your you tax, know, yeah, yeah, maybe your tax <laughs> to Mother Earth or whatever, yeah, but yeah. it was very much the sacred god. So, yeah. but I guess that that's really can, can I one little thing that a little small little glimmer of hope that I guess I've noticed in my time now. Uh, my daughter May is twelve, and she just started playing football. And I remember bringing her down to football and Gaelic football or soccer, soccer, soccer. And I remember I'd never like grown up there was no real female soccer at least mm. in our little town. And bringing her down and it was like a friend who I used to play was the coach. And was like, how does it work? Like, does it work the same? You know, this type of thing. And it was, it's so professional. And within her starting Ireland, the female Irish team qualified for the World Cup. And suddenly there's these role models for like female athletes. And it's just like, female and she's women really athletes. into women, women, sorry, women. And it's just like, it gives me great hope that there's now another model that isn't just kind of. Uh, the female being degraded to purely being about aesthetics where it's actually about their ability to play sport or collaborate as a team and just be role models Mm -hmm. yeah there's a new book out at the moment an illustrated book called um girls who slay dragons and it's just an illustrated book for kids but it's just taking the old stories of the old goddesses and Maeve and the old heroic female women in the characters there's loads of really really strong mad Cap, women characters in Irish mythology and just highlighting all these and realizing that they represented boldness, they represented overcoming obstacles, they rented sassiness, coolness. And again, you know, all we ever heard was Cú Cullen and Finn McCool, but actually all of this information is sort of bubbling up. Yeah, wow, I like that. Girls mm-hmm. who slay dragons. Mm-hmm. That's really nice. Okay, can, 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 I, can I say, 
I got an interesting one. Please, Pepper. No, just interesting. It just came up there because in terms of myth, Irish mythology, and I, I, Ireland at least, me growing up, it's always like sexually quite repressed. The Catholic Catholicism came in and it's kind of quite, we became quite prudish. And I'm just wondering if you go back and mm. back and into Irish myth, were we always that prudish or what was... Like, no, what no, are these? No. Yeah, no, I mean, these Irish pagan myth, times where they, where they like the Roman kind of orgies or what? Like, what way was our relationship with sex and it, the 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 kind of almost like the dialect around there and the the yeah. appropriateness? So for me, it reminds me of Africa, just because I've spent a lot of time in Africa. In Africa, there's no they have no qualms. If you go into a village, people just talk in the same way as like farmers in Ireland have no qualms about talking about sex among animals, among cattle. You know, it's just, you know, uh, like a particular stallion is, is, is rowdy or is horny or something else or a cow or a bull. And when I'm in communities in Africa, it's the same. It's just there's no shame about humans. Oh, yeah, someone's feeling randy. Someone's having sex with someone else illegitimate. It's just part of nature. And the Irish myths, but even the Irish language today has that idea. There's nothing shameful. Like, you know, curse words in Irish aren't sexual because there was nothing there was nothing dirty or shameful about the vagina or the penis these were just bits of the human body that were both either exciting or for procreation so then for us our curse words in Irish were always about the devil were always about those sort of darkness things and I remember so I think I was telling you earlier that I've been collecting words for the vagina words for the vulva um, in Irish just because you know in my in, bo- in the book 32 words for field I had loads of words for penis slat yeah, slat more exactly more gum where'd you get slat more Brenda that means yeah. a stick a big stick so we've right, we, yeah. been learning Irish just for anyone who's listening we've been learning Irish well obviously we learned it in school but the last number of years uh, partly been... due to Moncon's inspiration we've taken back up the learning the Irish language mm-hmm. And there's like so many words and some are amusing, like some is like a little edible, which is a little tail or bud, which penis or pilly bean, which is another word, little bird, but also little penis. <laughs> and then there's loads of, there's loads of words, seaweed references to penis as though like a shriveled little curly thing or a little brown, <laughs> thing. But anyway, there wasn't as many words for vagina. I mean, there clearly they were, but they had never been recorded or written down. So for the last, like maybe since my book, 32 Words came out, I've always telling people we need women to go into the Gweltacht and ask the older women for the Irish words, for not only not only uh, sexual words, but for the whole female condition, for breastfeeding. Like, you know, think of it. I mean, I know breastfeeding was a key element because just three days ago, I was with a woman from the Gweltacht who said that she, when she first had her baby, her dad and her granddad said, you need to, kohu is like give nourishment of nourishment. Now there were so many words all around that there must have been about different uh, medical treatments for mastitis and different elements of diarrhea but then they haven't been recorded just because the people the folklore collectors who came out of UCD the Folklore Commission whenever in the 1930s and 40s they were men and they would, wouldn't dare ask those questions of a woman. And even the woman, often the Shanachi, the storyteller, like Peg's, Peg Sayers was incredibly bawdy. Like she was incredibly... What does bawdy mean? Bawdy, she just told dirty stories. There was no Ugh. shame for her about telling right. really sort of good, earthy, sexy, raunchy stories. But all of that was removed from her from her text. Even like the Isle of Man, Tommaso This Crin. is Peg. She's the famous book that many people growing up in Ireland Leaving. would have studied for the Leaving Certain. It was a real, quite a dull book, apparently. I mean, the way it's, if it's presented to yeah, young kids, it's dull. But Peg Sayers was the storyteller, the Shanachy of the Blasco Islands. And the Blasco Islands was fascinating because you had this tiny remote island off the southwest coast of Ireland, off Kerry, which kept so much of our own traditions alive. Now, the people actually only left, only moved out onto Blasco. It's really during the famine when there was, they were looking for anywhere where the potato 
might grow without the blight. But the people who left, they were the poorest people, the most isolated people, and they brought this culture, which went right back to like, you know, to Bronze Age times. So that sort of mindset. And they lived there almost a hunter-gatherer life. Like my granny spent time there every summer. She'd go down from 1910 on. Almost a hunter-gatherer life. Yeah, I mean, my granny would be there and she would, they would crawl down the cliff face on ropes that they made themselves out of seaweed and horsehair and other bits of twine and bind to strengthen it. They'd be high, tall enough that you could climb down uh, the cliff face to collect seagull eggs. And then they'd go out and collect, you know, seals, kill seals and bring those on for blubber. Um, it was, you know, and then the whole thing was when there was herring coming in our mackerel. So there was very little farming going on because it was just a really exposed rocky island life. So it gives us a glimpse of what a life would have been like in the rest of Ireland. Anyway, Hegstairs was the great female storyteller, but then Tommaso Crehan was also a great storyteller. And he wrote a book called The, the Island Man or Untilanach. That was all censored too. He had great stories about swimming with women, uh, swimming sort of in the nip of women. All that was removed. So there was no shame, you know, there was no shame. And um, anyway, I was collecting these words and I was in, um, I was giving a talk in Kilmore Quay, you know, a very sort of straight lace sort of uh, Protestant-y type uh, elite village in, 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 um, in the southeast of Ireland. And uh, I was telling, I was collecting these words. And I said, I'd just been the night before in Clonmel. And there was this band, the, the, the Wild Geese, and they were saying all the words. They, they, get, they have this song, all the words, the English words for vagina and vulva. So they asked the audience in, um, in, in, in Clonmel, in Tipperary, um, what's, what's, so what's your local word for vagina? There must be a word. Every community has a word, which I didn't know about, a local word. But the audience said, yeah, yeah, we do. Fange, fange. So I told this kind of very straight-laced group in um, Kilmore Quay in Waterford. Is Kilmore Quay in Waterford or Wexford? It's Waterford. Um, anyway, I told them that and the woman says, oh yeah, no, I know fan. She says, and actually it's spelled P-H-A-N-G-E. <laughs> I don't know. This very straight-laced woman in pearls and beads and all. So anyway, but then there's other woman. I offer one from her town. Uh, no, but well, this other woman then stood up and says, here, I'll give you one. And she gave me a shanuckle. She gave me an Irish proverb. Oh, I love these. Yeah. And it started nice. It was like, cúrt agus sláinte. Cúrt, strength, agus sláinte and health. You know, so cheers, health. Cúrt agus sláinte agus gamaidir so August Gemeider and may you live, Kofada as long as that there may be. Does hair on your? Ex- I know what a gal is. Oh well done. <laughs> is that from Blind Boy? Gaul. No, gal. I think it was a word that was used as a, as in English. Kind of, as yeah, a, exactly. As a word for vagina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Blind Boy talks about it a lot because in Limerick, yeah, gal, you gal, and gal is actually a fork, gaulog or a gal. So gal is a groin, but in that context, exactly, it's often a vagina. But it's really gal. Being gal in a. So a, what's the channel again? So, oh, sorry. So, sorry but, it's yeah, just strength and exactly. Strength and health. Strength and that there may hair on your groin, or your basically the pubes on your fanny, as long as a goat's goatee. <laughs> <laughs> what a strange wow. That yeah. is out there. Yeah. A and just to, 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 to go back to answer your question, were they prudish long ago? Like one of the great stories about Queen Maeve, you know, Queen Maeve, the great high queen of Connacht, the woman who begins the whole fight with Cúchollan for the bull. You know, she has more property and more cattle and more money than her husband. And uh, when he, she realizes that the husband has one extra bull, she goes on this war with the whole of Ulster to get it back. So she's this powerful, potent female figure. And at one point, if you're to the east of Athlone, there is this big area where the, there's these two valleys dug out into the land, naturally dug out by glacial erosion. 
they were said to have been created by Queen Maeve's menstrual flow. So at one point, there's two stories. Either she was she was about to go into battle and she had needed to have a big slash, she had to have a, have a big piss, or it was her menses, her time of the month. And uh, oh, there was I came across a and lovely... And this, this tore out the valley that exactly, she was so fierce and Exactly, the flood water of her blood coming out of her cup tore out. So there was no shame. You know, the idea of portraying a powerful woman was showing her piss could create torrents in the landscape. Her menstrual flow could even open up the earth and leave, leave valleys behind it. I love Jeez, that. There's nothing Victorian about that now, is there? There's nothing priss or prim about that. Like it, it's dirty and honest. Raw feminine, just yeah, yeah. But even, even on that one, like it makes me think that like when we were growing up, so 20, 30 years ago, you know, it was very prudish. It was like yeah, sex yeah. was very much repressed. Whereas now maybe it's with maturity and getting older, like the energy or the stigmas almost come out of it that people are quite happy talking about it. You know, there's more, it's easier to have a conversation with people. And it's probably my perspective is changing rather than the, or maybe it is as a society it's changing I don't know I think probably a bit it's of more acceptance yeah and to be fair your podcast is doing a key play like you've been doing it and not you had your season on sex but then you had like a erectile dysfunction a few weeks ago like you've kept it up he, he was a great character he yeah. actually came to stay with me and we filmed a course called the Happy Hard On course no way yes. that, has that been released it's or going to be released, released next next for, year. for Valentine's Day Hilarious. <laughs> is it video? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, it's video. No, it's not a step by step, but he's a urologist, so it's actually, you know, as he says himself, he's the cock dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. deals right. with, with dicks and arseholes. Well, there was a <laughs> lot of. That's that's yeah, that's that sounds really crudish, but that yeah, is true. He's a urologist. Large, yeah. But like, as you say, all of us Irish men of our age, and I'm older than you, but we, there's things we don't really get and understand. So your series where you went in depth on so many elements of either the menopause or menstruation or different or elements masturbation of masturbation, exactly. or the social issues around it. Or pornography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was Amazing. a brilliant art, uh, podcast with the woman. This, is she Spanish, Spanish or Italy? Who uh, Swedish. May lives in Spain. Okay. Yeah, and even since then, I was talking to, to a friend who's a chaplain. He's a chaplain in a local school. And he was yeah. just saying about, because obviously we had the urologist over, which we were talking about erectile, he was talking about erectile dysfunction. And that's why it's called a happy heart on course. Mm -hmm. And he, this, the chaplain was saying in the secondary school, the amount of young boys that come in with issues with erectile dysfunction from watching too much porn. No way. Yeah. No way. Yeah. So he could totally, he kind of said, yeah, I see it. He said, I see wow. boys coming into me saying that they just can't get it. Yeah, yeah. They don't get aroused from, you know, like, a, a, you know, which is, anyway, we're and that line, way off topic. Okay, I know. But just that, that line Erica said comes back to him. Is that Erica Love? Is er that Erica, Erica Lust? Yeah. Erica Lust. Lust. You know, where she says, you know, people, men and even sensitive boys will open up a pornography page and it'll say like, you know, I beat her down. She was crying when I, I crammed my penis into her so hard. These really violent terms that they would never allow in any other part of their world, these like sense of mm. young boys and men, all of us. But in a pornography page, you get away with that. You you think it's okay to read that type of violence. Yeah, yeah. And it was brilliant what yeah. she was doing. So yeah, we're all on this journey of discovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I anyway, I want, I want to move the conversation because last time you were here, we were discussing about the Irish language and how there's so much mythology and there's so much history and ancestry baked into and our language. intertwined with and, the landscape. And this is Irish. We're Irish men. We grew up learning Irish, uh, Irish as a language. And your most recent project has been about the land and how the land has... Most recent has, book. You might, I'd say it's more than a book because it's been a journey and the book is one of the fruits upon the journey. But it's been about uncovering the land and the stories within the land and the idea between where does history, what we believe is factual history, versus mythology and legend. Where do these two coerce and where do they cross over mm -hmm. and the whole unfolding of this process. Yeah. And I'd love to talk to you about this, Michael. 
Yes. Yeah. So as you said, whatever, just in the height of COVID, I had that book, 32 Words for Field, which looked at landscape, I'd look at language. language. And it was, and it was, a, it was a hugely popular book. Ridiculously so. Yeah. Who would have thought? But exactly. People really got on the idea of, and we were looking at the insights that the Irish language gave into the psyche or the other world or like the, your power past and our culture. And I decided, yeah, I wonder what we could learn about, um, from the landscape, I look at the landscape. And it was mainly because of this one thing that was in the Shanachas Moor, which was the written collection of our oral lore. And like weird- Lore is in kind of stories. Our knowledge, yeah. Okay. Like weird. So we've been on this island, you know, there's quite a lot of, of um, Bronze Age DNA in people in Ireland, particularly along the West Coast where, the, where they speak well, Irish. We were, we were up in Northern Ireland there recently up mm. in Coleraine. And mm-hmm. supposedly there's a forest up there where there was the earliest- signs of settlers which mm-hmm. came across the bridge between Scotland and Ireland mm-hmm. and these were dark-skinned people that's according to what it says up there mm-hmm. and that they lived on the hazelnuts up in the woods up that's there right. and we stayed in a house right on the, the edge of that Ugh. forest and it was very interesting to hear all the stories yeah yeah so they were dark-skinned and blue-eyed like that mix doesn't even exist anymore so they were hunter-gatherers who arrived here and like we're not those people and then we're not the people who came after those, which was the Neolithic people, the early Stone Age people, the, the new Stone Age people, the people who built Nout and Douth and Newgrange and the great monumental uh, sculpture um, sites, ritual sites and ceremonial sites, um, the big ring forts, uh, and ring fort, r- the ring passage tombs is the best way of describing them. And, um, but I don't like the word tomb because really you don't see loads of dead bodies. You might see uh, the, 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 the burnt remains of one very significant elder, but really they just seem to have been ritual and ceremonial. And as we know, the main, what they are, a passage tomb, it's a big circular womb-like, belly-like shape in the landscape, if you can picture Newgrange, with these tunnels going into the middle of them, these round tunnels. And those tunnels, uh, they're designed so that the sun enters them, you know, twice a year, often on the equinox or the solstice. The sun runs down the passageway. Like incredibly sophisticated Incredibly so, yeah. And if you think of it, we know from every culture and particularly from our ancient culture and our mythology that we believe that the earth was female. It seems that we believe the sun was male and so many cultures have the same concept. So the male sun was impregnating the soil. If you have this big wow. pregnant belly with like a vagina in the center of it, this sacred um, chamber Opening, in the second, yeah. the sun goes down with its phallic penis twice a year and fertilizes it fertilizes it. So all we really need to know... To and it one, gives birth to the food. Is that exactly, it? Exactly. Yeah, it happens. You know, that's right. It just... It, so they it, it it does it at the equinox of the solstice and then impregnates the earth and then the earth can then give life and give food to us. And you find that concept in Africa and South America in Aboriginal cultures. And if we just went back to that idea and looked at Ireland again, which is really all I did for this new book, for a book called Listen to Land Speak, was saying, okay, what remnants are there that we would have seen the land as this great female? And uh, they're everywhere. I mean, the key, the easiest way of looking is at the rivers, because so many of the rivers still have goddess names, like the Ban and the Bandon. That's just from the Bandia, you know, woman god, goddess. Or then the Inni in the Midlands is the nearest river to me, which is the Etna. And Etna means grain, but it's a goddess of the grain. And then um, the other um, Shunan, as you said, Shunan, Shunan, the goddess who goes down looking for wisdom. Um, And like, 
the real thing for me is that, so we said, we're the Bronze Age people. So we arrived four and a half thousand years ago. Now, not, not all, if we look, if we extracted our DNA, not all of it would be, would be um, <coughs> Bronze Age. But there's a significant proportion, more DNA in us than in any other sort of European conglomeration of people. Maybe there's only about 5%. That's on the male side. If we ex- examine the female side, there'd be more again, but no one has done it. It's kind of harder to examine that line. And they're to be found on the West Coast, okay, which is where the Irish language is. And that Irish language culture has been living on the West Coast for two and a half thousand years, two, two and a half thousand years, okay? So we have this unbroken tradition, two and a half thousand years, the same stories, the same language, the same culture happening on the West Coast of Ireland. And somehow they seem to have brought all of the old words and practices, I might give you some examples in a second, of the knowledge that the Bronze Age people, so who the Bronze Age people are, who we are, we're the people who came from where Eastern Europe meets Western Asia, um, and we brought more sophisticated farming techniques, more sophisticated ways of growing grain and of looking after cattle and producing dairy products than the Neolithic people. So, th- so would that have been more like where Turkey, where Eastern Europe meets Asia? It's kind of your talk in Istanbul. Exactly. Kind of yeah, yeah. So, so we're, we're, we're part Turkish. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So it's sort right. of Argus. Some people say, that, say Greek, that like one of the few languages that has a kind of relationship with Irish is kind of historical Greek or traditional Greek or Greek Orthodox. Really? I yeah, yeah. Brendan, Brendan studied Greek in wow. school and yeah, he yeah. saw a link between the Shavu, like the words, the Shavu and yeah, all sorts yeah. of things with the Irish language and Greek. With their, so, Classical Greek, I think it was. I know. Um, yeah, I need, so it's, you see, it's because, um, so I said, we could say that, so there's, you know, this has all happened long ago, so people vary, but it was definitely in, in where Eastern Europe and West Asia, so whether that's Turkey or whether it's further up in sort of the Pontic Steep around Russia, which people say, or then further down from Turkey into the Middle East, it looks like we we honed those, our farming methods there and moved up and down, migrated along that way, you know, between basically Turkey and then slightly North Armenia, but up towards Russia and then down to the Middle East and then into the Mediterranean, then around the Mediterranean to Spain and then up the Atlantic coast to Ireland. And that's why all the mythology say we're Milesians. There was first the Tuatha Dé Danann, the Tuatha, the people of Day of Danann, of the goddess Anya. Everything is about, is about goddesses, really. And Anya just means brightness, it means light, it means sun. God of light, yeah. goddess of light. And remember, the first settlers were only able to come here because the 10,000 years ago, maybe up to 12,000 years ago, the climate changed, it warmed, and the ice sheet melted. And as it did so, it brought warmth. It brought sun from the south. Anya. It basically brought the sun, the Anya, the brightness, and that melted the, la- the, the ice sheet, and we settled here. And that story is then encoded, that fact that happened 10, 11, 12,000 years ago, is encoded in the story of the Tuatodonon, of Anya, the goddess. Um, and like, you know, you, you still, all around Ireland, you're still going to places which are called Kilaney or Nakaini. Anya is everywhere in the landscape, in the place name still. So Kilaini, like Anya. Exactly. Kilaini, no, that's Kilaini Lena, I think. Is it Kilaini? Kilaini Lena. It couldn't, it might be Aina or the Nanya. Kilaini Lena. Or maybe it is, maybe the church of Inin, of the daughter of Anya, maybe. Yeah. Or Lena. But, um, What's weird about this is that this is information, this is, you know, this is information that happened like 11, 10, 11, 12,000 years ago when the ice sheet happened, that's still encoded in the place names, most likely. But then we only arrived here four and a half thousand years ago, yeah? So our information, all this Bronze Age information, and all our Bronze Age information, it's all about the bow, because the book, the cow. We brought more sophisticated methods of farming. So let's say, you know, when when you're an Indian, everything's about the cow. The rivers are the milk of the cow. The rivers are sacred and they were produced by these sacred cows. The cows on the streets are all sacred. It's because the cow changed everything for 
are the people who we are descended from. And we're descended from the same people as the Indians. We're all this Indo-European culture. Okay, so we before that, before we had domesticated the cow, nothing was secure. A bad year would wipe us out. But once we had the cow domesticated, we were able to have guaranteed milk, guaranteed warmth, guaranteed leather and everything. Uh, so that's why all of India is probably in about worshipping the cow. Like that was a goddess. who The goddess the cow enabled just population to have better food. Exactly. And yeah, yeah. And that's why our main goddess in Ireland was the Boyne River, the Boinda, which is the Boinda, the white cow, the cow of transparency, the cow who could access wisdom. It was a cow who nourished all of her people with life-giving milk. And um, she then also had access to to wisdom. Um well, it's like the salmon of knowledge. Like it sounds like exactly. Well, yeah, the wisdom. Like yeah, and they're, they're they're both connected. The Boeing, the river, is created by Boeing, the goddess of the cow, goes down to the well, the sacred well, and gets in touch with the salmon of knowledge. Which is anyway. But the, oh, what am I trying to say? But basically. Um, everything seems There's a lot of big threads here now you're pulling together. I know, I know. I need to, I need to get this before it loses all. What is amazing is we can tell, we, the reason that we have all these stories about goddesses, about cattle, goddesses and the cattle, and the goddess being often a mother, go, a mother cow who nourishes her people with her milk, is the exact same reason that India has the same ones. And the same reason that we have a goddess, Bowen, Bowen or Boinda, a mother goddess who nourishes her people. Bow is obviously cow. Finn is pale or transparent or, you know, white. So Fionn McCool, fair-haired Fionn, or, or uh, Fionn who can access knowledge. And Bowind is the exact same god as Govinda that you find in India. The exact same. Wow. And Govinda is another form of Krishna. So, like, the reason that that's the same is because we were the same culture. Everyone was, we were all Indo-European cultures. The whole of Europe was, which gets us back to Brown Dawn and why he's saying Irish and Greek are camp, the same, okay? Everyone was the same culture. But of course, so much, that was thousands of years ago. So much has happened in Europe since it's all been lost, but it hasn't been lost in Ireland and it hasn't been lost in India because Ireland is on the right extreme west coast. India is the extreme east coast. And it was like you have a stone put into the center of a pool and the ripples go out. And Ireland, not much has changed in the last 5,000 years. India, not much has changed. So we still have the same stories. Whereas in the middle, the whole, you know, the Goths and the Visigoths and the Greeks and the Romans turned up everything, created all new cultures. And so we don't see it so clearly. So what's amazing is if we go back into our mythology, our stories, which even were told like by our grandparents, we realize that the exact same stories that were told like, you know, 5,000 years ago in, in India. It's, it's ridiculous. Like Christy Moore, our singer-songwriter, sings songs that are the same song that was sung in India because we can find it in the old Vedic records, the old Sanskrit records from like thousands of years ago. The same song. Wow. It's, and, and none of us thought about this. And when you think, what does that remind you of? It reminds you of an indigenous culture. It reminds you of cultures who go way, way back. So for the longest time, we just thought in Ireland, oh, we're colonized. So we need to screw up the land because someone has been screwing us up. We have no power. We don't have our own agency. And then if we thought anything else we thought oh well, we're just white people we're like the english or the germans and everything else but we're not we are these weird weird misfit spiritual hobbits on the edge of <laughs> europe who kept this ancient indigenous uh um awareness that was once a time before the time of colonialism before the rise of the patriarchy and male dominance was right throughout europe and we have a and First, we need to, it's very, we should be careful when you use the word um, indigenous. 
and I'll, I'll get to that in a bit because you know we don't want to step on the foot of of First Nations or of our of, 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 or, or, you know um, native tribes. But it's really important that we in Ireland realize we have something valuable. We have been on this rock for four and a half thousand years. We have not only survived on this stormy green Atlantic, um, you know, mist and storm covered rock, but we have thrived at the times other than the times where oppressors, Christian church, the Vikings, the English came in and tried to wipe us out. But we have the knowledge of how to tr thrive in an entirely sustainable way on this rock. And we need to go back and find it. It's all in the stories, in the words, in the proverbs, in the songs. And then we need to get over the hell to go over our other hangups about being colonized or being whites like, you know, like, like Germans or something. We are not. We are people who've been on this rock for a long time. We have the wisdom that goes back way, way long. And that's why, and again, I learned only a lot of this because I spent two months in America in the springtime and I met with some Native American elders and they basically just took me on a very quick journey of a few days and beat sense out of me, into me, not violently, but just said like, there's things you need to know about who you are and what your role is in the world as Irish people. And what do, what, what do they say? They said- What is our role? They, yes, great, the answer. I've <laughs> <laughs> been waiting for this for 42 years. <laughs> what is the purpose to our life, Mon Kong? I'm still, I mean, I'm still coming to terms with all this and I maybe haven't expressed it right, you know, in my own head. So I maybe a year later, I'll be clear, but it seems, and it, but it's not even, because this is something that's arising in Ireland in this movement. Because as you said, my book, 32 Words for Field, did well, did ridiculously well about a book about the Irish language, which never should have done well. Like, you know, we have spent the last, as long as you've been on this earth, as long as I've been on this earth, no, the majority did not care about the Irish language. A tiny little percentage but of it, weirdos. It, it betrayed the Irish language, not in this old-fashioned, kind of forced-upon-you thing, but more as this thing of beauty. Yeah. And, and it was it spoke to people's kind of hope, and it, it, it hit it deeply, kind of resonated with, of who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Who we are and our ancestry mm -hmm. and the history and the keys to our culture. And more understanding of our past. If we understand where we came from, it's more likely we're going to understand who we are today. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but, but, it's, so, but it certainly just wasn't, you know, my book. This is happening. This is a movement that's arising among the consciousness in, in Ireland and possibly around the world. But we're sort of more, uh, we know more what's happening in Ireland. There is this bubbling up among us as a tribe, as a people on this island, as an aware, is awareness. Oh, actually, we have something important in our past. And not only is it a nice cultural thing to give out on St. Patrick's Day, but it could actually nourish us. It could actually give us practical information about how to live in the world. So that is, and it's all tied up. It's the Irish language and the insights that gives us into traditional ways of farming, into our relationship with the sun, how everything is deshal, everything is sunwise. So in the Irish language, anything that you're doing that is connected with the natural world or the spiritual world is done deshal, sunwise. Oh, yeah, sunwise. Like yeah, yeah, well, clock. Even interestingly, someone I only learned, learned, learned recently, that word clock, the English word clock, it's, oh. it's from the Irish clog. It's, oh. uh, no, uh, cl clock. not clock. No, clock. Uh, like the English word clock for, you know, a timepiece is from clog, which is bell. I hadn't thought about clog and clock, which is stone. Because it could be the stone, you know, the old Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, nice. That's one. what I thought you were going with. Yeah, I got to think about that. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, but the, you see, the monks, my um, the monks, you know, time was very important for the monks, and they marked it out with the bell, with the with the and the Irish for bell is clog. So that word clog then seems to have come into the English language as, as clock. But anyway, that's a that is a, a diversion. Um, really, the idea is that yeah, we have this language that shows us how to live 
in harmony with this burning star at the center of our solar system, with the sun, with the land, with the rivers, the rivers being goddesses. And all of our stories tell about well, rivers and wells working in harmony with the humans, with the local people, as long as the humans give them respect. The moment someone either pollutes a well or um, dishes a river or, you know, doesn't or takes too much trout from a river or something, the river then either moves or dries up or pollutes or goes saline. In other words, the sea comes into it. Same with wells. Wells are going often or distant or moving to somewhere else because they were insulted. In other words, they were polluted. They weren't respected. So at a time, like I recently, I addressed the Climate uh, Citizen Assembly on biodiversity. In other words, you know, where 100 members of our island, of our community have been randomly picked and have come together to learn all about diversity and climate and what we need to do in the future. And they're going to advise the government. It's, you know, the rest of the world is looking at what Ireland is doing now, where we are picking randomly 100 people in this island and we are educating them about the issues out of biodiversity and they will then tell the government. Because, you know, in the last Citizens' Assembly that happened um, about the, the about climate change, they were way ahead. The citizens, the random uneducated citizens who were then trained by the experts were, were ahead of what the government thought the public were. So there's now, there's now 19 different countries reaching out to Ireland looking at this Citizen' Assembly complex, uh, concept. Like, rather than government deciding what we should do, let's get 100 random citizens. Governments with all their agendas and all their, you know, their biases. Political. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so, um, so, so so it's almost like so it's almost like that. Um, the concept is that we need to live very harmonious with nature, with nature and all ourselves. And if it's if we set, step out of this state of symbiotic relationship, mm -hmm. nature will move and it won't nourish us. That it is very much a dance, and we need to respect it. And if we don't respect it, it won't provide for us. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a message that you guys have been saying for 20 years, like in the mm. Happy Pain Greystones, anyone who would come in would have known this idea. You need to look after the soil. You need to get off the ground. It'll give you nourishing food that'll nourish you. And you need to be aware of your mind and body relationship. But what's amazing, what's only coming up in recent years, uh, thankfully a lot to new scholarship, is that actually that's what our, our entire mythology and culture and language and poems and songs is based on. It's based on this idea of trying to teach people how to live harmoniously. That's the concept of sacral kingship, which the whole of Irish Ireland um, fiefdom or control or governance has been based on, again, for thousands of years. The idea that the king is impregnating the soil. The king is on a relationship with the land. The land is the goddess and the king, both in India and Ireland, um, the king, the relationships often, they seem to the inauguration ceremonies. In other words, when the king was crowned king, there was often a phallic element. Either he, 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 had, he stood at a big phallic stone, a penis-like stone, or sometimes it seems to account that he would um, bear his own penis or he would impregnate a horse, uh, uh, um, a female, a female <laughs> horse, Jesus, a mare. That's weird. And you find the same in Ireland and in India because, you see, the horse was a sacred animal and the, uh, uh, the mare, the female horse, and then the man was just showing... You see, the man is fertilizing the land. The man is represented of the, both the sun. The king is sort of half the sun and half the, the rest of the populace. And that the sun and the populace need to go in right relationship with the earth. And then you will have a fruitful, you know, life, fruitful, everything. Everyone fruitful will be, harvest. And yeah, exactly. But, but, but nature will be harmonious and fruitful and so will humans and so will... So these are all ideas that we're, that we're just coming around to realizing that we, we would have expected these to be found in some sort of Aboriginal culture or Native American culture. But the fact that they are in our culture and that they we sort of covered over them by putting nice stories about Cú and Finn McCool and people beheading each other on top of it. 
But all of these stories are being told. And the key element, where are they? Where are the stories? They're in three places. They're in manuscripts that were written down by the monks from maybe the 8th century up until the 12th, 13th century. And that's a beautiful thing. You know, the Christianity came with its own agenda to try and cut people off from this idea of finding nourishment and a spirit in the land. They wanted to break that relationship of us finding God directly with the sun and the river and the earth and wanted us to go through their priests. But somehow the monks in Ireland had this weird strand. They were doing that. They were bringing in this new, smaller, lesser, proselytizing, controlling issue of Jesus Christ and Rome. But at the same time, they didn't want to lose all the old pagan knowledge of the connection to the cosmos. So they all the old mythology, they, they wrote it down in manuscripts, in these big scriptoria in the monasteries. Sometimes they changed it a bit to make it seem a little bit more ghoulish and brutal and weird so that the, in case the, the actual Christians would start believing in that rather than Christianity. But, they, but it's all written there and we can sort of take apart the weird elements, the, the warped elements that the Christian monks added and see where the truth is underneath it. So we have it in those manuscripts. But then we also have elements in the oral tradition of the people that were never written down, that survived in the Gwaeltacht area. Because remember I said, like that's this, those Gwaeltacht, these Irish-speaking areas in Galway, in Donegal, and Mayo, in Mayo, and Cork, and Kerry, were vital. Because there the stories and the poems and the words survived, not in the manuscripts, in the big um, journals of the monasteries, but in the people's minds and stories. And they were passed down in the Irish language. And as I say, weirdly, you know, that's where the DNA, that's where the people with the most four and a half thousand year old DNA is. So actually really ancient knowledge potentially um, in those stories. And um, so that's one place, the manuscript. Second place, the oral tradition that is still in the stories of the likes of Peg Sayers, the storyteller we talked about on And you, you wonder Alaska those Island. people, those, those like people who've had four and a half thousand years, supposedly with that DNA and that culture and that heritage. Mm. And you wonder now, like kind of, you know, if the whole message is really to live more harmonious with nature and more respectful and live a very reverence, symbiotic, right? have a deep reverence for it, you wonder what's happening because all of, it's, it seems in my perspective that all of us are drinking from the one cup and the one cup is about exploitative capitalism and how much can we take from the mm -hmm. land and store my own personal savings at the expense of everything else. And it's individualism, whereas you know, this four and a half thousand year old story mm -hmm. or this kind of this ancient indigenous, you know, way of looking at the world doesn't seem to be being applied, but maybe it is. In, and in it these... seems to be like a lot more harmonious, not a lot less about it's like we knew enoughness back then mm -hmm. that it wasn't about. M maybe, maybe that we didn't know enoughness. It was just that you couldn't get that much. Yeah. yeah like you couldn't uh, get that much. Now, you, you know, the, like yeah, you couldn't store, you couldn't store much stuff. You could like it was any physical there was no technology, no big machinery mm. that you could scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There wasn't this. Yeah. So, I mean, to to first, I would say I think there was an awareness that there was this concept of enoughness, and I think that's to be shown in the Glass Gynach story or the Glass Gyvelin story. Um, I'll tell that story first, maybe. So, the Glass Gynach is a story of the mythological cow. And almost every strand you go back to goes back to cow. Cows are everything just because it's the same idea that cows are everything in India. We shared that same culture. We've explained why cows are everything. People are obsessed by the cow because it changed their world. It's weird in a time where we're trying to move away from cattle and dairy. Like everything <laughs> is so complex, you know. In the same way, when I say that those people have this DNA, four and a half thousand year old DNA, it could only be 5% or maybe a bit more. 
but they weren't speaking the same language. You know, we weren't speaking Irish here two and a half thousand years ago. So there's a lot we don't know. So I'm sort of pulling together strands, but there's things we don't know clearly because this is all way prehistory. But let me focus on what, and so yes, you're right that most of these ideas in our mythology, most of us are not living by those ideas. But what's beautiful is that somehow by no direct effort, these stories are re-emerging now at a time where we need them, at a time where we do feel really lost, where all of the old stability, the economic system, the government, the food system, the climate, look like they're in peril and look like they're in change. Suddenly the ancient information is rising up with no rational, no one's directing this. This just seems to be happening among loads of different people and it's only the beginning of it. But let me give you an example of why I think we did have a harmonious, a generous, a, a, a proper harmonious idea. I'll give you two examples. But one is the Glasgowland. The Glasgowland was, she was a mythical cow and you will find her in every single parish in Ireland. And she was known about, we know, extremely well known about up until the 1930s anyway because there was this concept called you know the school's collection the school's folklore collection in 1937 and 38 and 39 Eamon de Valera at the time our leader sent the he wrote questions about folklore and sent them out to every single school in Ireland and he got the kids to go out into their community and ask the wisest or the oldest person in their community to answer these questions about folklore okay so all of the answers were came were brought back to the teachers and they were all transcribed and they were all brought back to the Folklore Commission, the archives of the Irish folklore. And now most of them have been digitized. So anyone can find them on duchas.ie, which is www.duchas.ie. And you go to, you go put in Glasgainachar, the magical cow, into any, into Gluchastachali, and you'll find the stories from every parish, every county. Everyone knew about this magical cow. And what did the magical cow do? She appeared out of nowhere. And she would graze, you immediately knew which field she was grazing because she left that field greener and more lush and more with more variety of different herbs and wild plants and grasses than anywhere else. It was a gift. And she would give unlimited milk to anybody who wanted it. Un, anyone could come and you would get unlimited milk, okay? So she was the bounty. She represented the bounty of the goddess of the land, both re-fertilizing the land and making the land hold, but also giving of herself endlessly until a man came, a man, a foreigner, nomadic man, a man from somewhere else. Just like, you know, you're saying there's a lot of dark ideas about greed and capitalism. We know they arrived in to Ireland. We know how they arrived in. They arrived in through Dublin and Belfast. They arrived in through this new imperialist colonial mind that came in the, you know, 18th, 19th century. And there's no blame. That's just what happened in the world. As you know, we all went down this way of increase in mass. But anyway, so the, the story that was told for thousands of years and was still told regularly in every community or was known in the 1930s says the man, the nomadic man comes in and he says uh, that everyone in the local communities, look at our magical cow. She gives unlimited milk to anyone who ever wants it. The poor, the sick, the, 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 everyone who gets it. She gives it for free. And he says, oh, well, I bet you, he says, I have a vessel that she couldn't fill. And they all say, of course, no, she, you couldn't, couldn't. She'll give it to anyone. She's unlimited. And he says, no, no, I bet you. And he's scheming, greedy, you know, man. And, uh, but they know they're so in love of the bounty of their cow that they say that couldn't happen. So he says, well, I'll wager you. He says, let me see if I can find a vessel that she'll never fill. And so they agree because they have such confidence in the unlimitedness that they're not, they're never going to take too much from the cow, but they know she'll always be there when they want it. So, you know, the, he comes along with the sieve and he gets the sieve and he puts the sieve under the cow and he milks the cow and the milk flows and he milks the cow and it flows and it flows. It all flows through the sieve and it flows and it flows and it washes down the river, the, the hills and the mountains, it washes down the rivers. Um, 
I'm just I might have told you this story at the of our last happy pair too. No, I, can't I remember. love this. Oh, yeah, it's and it flows, it flows, it flows through until the whole land is awash with the milk. And eventually she the, the poor Glaskine, the poor cow gets tired and um she has uh there's very little milk left to her, and eventually the milk turns to blood. And she oh. he keeps on squeezing, keeps on blood comes out of her, and eventually she just falls in a dead heap of just her skin and her bones oh. on the ground. And the man is victorious. You see, I showed Jesus. You, you see, I showed you. I could, I beat that magic cow, and the cow dies. You know, and it's this is as I said, it was in every community as a message to every community: respect the sources of your food, honor them, do not exploit them, do not overuse, just use what you need. Um, and so what happened though, how that story ended was well, it's nearly like a sad story but it's a story yeah. about enoughness it's about yeah, like exactly. your place and respect yeah. like, as I you know. said it's and the beauty of the cow doesn't end there's loads of stories of the Glasgowna and what she does then it's a she's a yeah she's is green or grass exactly yeah. yeah and either Glasgowna it could be gau, um, Gavlon which is a sur, sur, the same word we had earlier for the gaul Gavlon means forked um, forked patterns on the, on the on the hide so it's either like a street cat cattle are glass gynach and gawain could be a gawain little calf there's different definitions for it but anyway the cow is a magical cow so once the man is gone and once the story has been has gone has been learned she just picks herself up she shakes her skin back and puts the bones back into the skin and she wanders off back into the other world so it's a message that this bounty is always there humans can't kill the bounty we can just kill it for ourselves and it'll go from where we are but the magical cow just goes elsewhere you cannot kill the bounty you can just um that is almost like the abundance of life is always available if yeah. you open yourself to yeah. it. And you can just you pollute your own land and send it away from you, but it's still there if you want to honor it and welcome it back in, in a new way. Beautiful metaphor. Yeah. I um, love that. On that note, I, I wonder if we could talk briefly about um the fact that English is quite a language that's quite, you know, it's intertwined with rationalism, with science, with reason, logic, mm-hmm. fact, measured. What you can see only exists, whereas Irish is a language that one, and you've kind of really talked about it, is just how beautifully intertwined it is with the landscape. Mm -hmm. But it's also a language that is very much intertwined with kind of the other worldliness, like Mm -hmm. that, that there's more than this world that we can see and touch and even like you know even simple things like growing up there were fairy forts there were fairy rings there was you know the the idea of a leprechaun and other kind of beings that aren't just that we can see and touch Mm -hmm. and more magic and most like even friends we we had we used to have a sunday podcast group and we had it kind of during covid when you were allowed to meet up and we used to have it on a beach and we'd sit around and we'd have chats and i remember one of the halloweens we were sitting there and we told ghost stories and this is this is grown up men and women like mm-hmm. and every from all over Ireland and beyond. And there was incredible stories of, you know, people seeing ghosts or seeing fairies or mm-hmm. seeing these kind of things, which still live on in tales, which you tell now. But um, they yeah, kind in terms of the Irish language and that mm-hmm. it kind of almost it has a lot more room for this. It's, it's yeah. part of the the kind of wovenness of the language, mm-hmm. whereas English it kind of, it's almost like pushed out. It's not necessarily celebrated. Sorry to interrupt you there, Steve. I'll let you get back to that fascinating question shortly. You might be aware of the sad statistic that Ireland's the least forested country in Europe. The least. We like to flip that stat in its head and think that there's the greatest opportunity here for reforestation. We're in a global climate and biodiversity crisis. After centuries of deforestation, most of Irish ancient woodland is gone. So we want to tell you about our friends Wolfgang. Dave went to college with the wonderful Al Coleman. He's a dear friend and he's worked with us and he's doing amazing things for the environment. 
Wolfgang Reforest have bought 51 acres and they're planting only certified native Irish trees. You can see the benefits at Tomna Finog Woods in County Wicklow. Should all 51 acres get planted, that would mean 30% increase in the forest footprint. So how about going green this Christmas by giving the gift of a tree instead of a possession people probably don't need with Wolfgang Reforest. It only takes three minutes to gift a tree. Where can you find out about Dave? Wolfgangreforest.ie. That's W-O-L-F-G-A-N-G-R-E-F-O-R-E-S-T dot I-E. Wolfgangreforest.ie. Yeah, so that's the importance of old languages and not just Irish, but any of these old languages have this consciousness. First, they have two things. First, as we've touched on, they have this really rootedness with the landscape and with the ways we always had of living sustainably and finding food. And I give you loads more words of those, but particularly, as you said, this connection with the other world. And this was a concept that was in no way unique to Ireland or the Irish language. You know, every culture around the world believed there were magical entities that were um, interacting with humans the whole time. And it's so beautiful that we've kept some of that element alive in, in Irish. Um, so like the word skim, skim means it means it can mean a fairy mist that covers the land in the early morning, or it can mean a magical vision, or skim can also mean succumbing to the supernatural world through sleep. <laughs> in other words, being soiveness, being shihal. But it's even. so broad and it's like Beautiful. like it's so specific in yeah. its like <laughs> exactly. its usage. Like it's not like over yeah. there. It's like that's right. Very specific. Yeah. And that idea of counter and altar. Remember, counter is this district, mm. this place, altar is the other world. And there was only ever a thin veil between counter and altar. And people and beings and entities could pass from one to the other, from counter and altar. But even the word, you know, the main word for a fairy in Irish is, is she or sheog. And she originally meant she originally meant a fairy mound or, um, you know, those ring forts that we see in the landscape. And then it was the area around the fairy mound. Um, you know, and fairy, mount, fairy mounds or ring forts are mainly their human settlements from maybe the 7th to the 12th century, um, where they were the, it was the walls of someone's farm that would have kept the wolves out at night and kept the cattle inside. And, um, but people decided they were fairy mounds. And so that was called a she. Then the fairies got that name, the she, because they were associated with these places. So Banshee is a woman fairy. But then she Gwiha, she Gwiha is a gust of wind, because that was considered to be the fairies rushing by. So we... Like even, you know, that I, wow. my granny's generation would have had that. We would have said, oh, she gwiha. And um, they would have said, oh, yeah, that's it could, it's a gust of wind. But it was this sudden wind that passed through the farmyard. And it might as well have been fairies coming through. But the Fairies word, coming through. Yeah, the root of the word. fairies considered good or bad? Because they were, you know, the way now through Walt Disney and through the current media, fairies yeah. are magical creatures that bring in and they're always really good and whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas fairies, I think, in Irish mythology, they weren't always good. They were quite mischievous, playful. They were, yeah. They were these mischievous uh, uh, entities. I have a concept, and I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure how true it is, but it does seem to make sense. Like the she, that word she, um, the fairy, is also the, it seems to be the root of the word shihan, peace. So you know shihan. So the shihan. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Keep she, the, the, the guardy, the guards of the fairies, really. Uh, the she. Um, so like in Scots Gaelic, uh, which was the same language as Irish Gaelic until the 12th century in terms of written form until the 16th century, just 400 years ago. Um, the she, she, S-I-T-H is fairy and she, S-I-T-H is peace. They're, they're the same word. But long ago, do you remember, we used to spell that word she, S-I-D-H-E or S-I-D-E. So shida, shida. And linguistically, shida has the exact same root. It is the same word coming from the same word as siddha. And siddha is a Sanskrit word. And Siddha, you know, Siddha means a human being who has attained a certain degree of enlightenment. 
human being who is no longer caught up by the human condition and has some element of divinity. And you find Siddha, um, the, the sort of yogi she Siddha. It's like it's, back to... It's back to Star Wars. There was the Siddhas, wasn't it, or something? There was Star the Wars, Siddhas, yeah, yeah. Some kind of like Sid Masters or exactly. something. Exactly. You know, yeah. Yoga gone way off now. Yeah, well, a Yoga Siddhini is a, means actually a wizard in Sanskrit, but also means a, a, yeah, a, a, yogi, wizard. a yogini Siddha. It's like a, a, an, an enlightened I love yogini. where this is gone. I <laughs> love a good L sci fi. So, <laughs> real world, this is brilliant. Siddha, Siddha is a concept you find in Buddhism, in Hinduism, and Jainism. And I said, in all, it just means someone who is in touch with divinity, who's no longer as trapped and caught up in the human travails and the, the worries of life. And so, if Siddha, as the exact same root, as the same as word fairy. as she, Shida. We should look again at what we know about the fairies. The fairies are these little divine, these little goddesses, these little divinities, um, deities in the landscape. And they're always in around the fairy forts. And the fairy forts, what do we know about them? They're places of peace and prosperity and plenty. And the fairies, in the, according to the stories, they spend their whole time cavorting and dancing and celebrating and feasting and urging human beings to do the likewise. You know, come and join the feast, come and join the dance. But the humans are always like, just caught up in our own petty Toil. things. Yeah, we're also, oh, I'm too tired, I'm too sick, I'm worried, too I need busy. help. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost like that these fairies are like these blissed out hippies in the landscape saying, join us. There's a bigger picture beyond the human condition, but we just dismiss it. So I think that our fairy stories, I believe they were originally messages to us, all those fairy stories about there is, immerse yourself in nature, there are gods in nature. And I can give you one bit of proof that we did once worship in the fairies. And it's from a hymn from the, the 7th century by the hymn of Fiach. Now, Fiach was a disciple of St. Patrick, who was in the 5th century. So this poem could actually be from the 5th century, but we can trace the languages at least the 7th century. And Fiach says, For Tuhi Eire by Temel, among the people of Ireland, Tuhi Eiren, by Temel, there was darkness, Tuhi Adortus Siddha, the people, Tuhi Adort, adored Siddha. the fairies. Yeah, so we know that during the 7th century, we did worship the fairies. They were little gods to us, little goddesses. And it'd be lovely if, rather than now being embarrassed by them at St. Patrick's Day when Americans come over looking for leprechauns, we say, no, these are our deities. These are our divine beings in the landscape and we honour them. And so, so where does, okay, so fairy, totally, I love, I love where we're going in our beliefs around fairies. I, I'm all on board. I love the idea of divine little creatures who really are, and maybe they're not little, they're more entities or spirits that we really, they're drawing us out of the human condition. Mm -hmm. I'm all for it. And now the idea of leprechauns. Mm -hmm. Now, where does that come from? And do you see any in Irish history, mythology, legends? Is there any or is this a Lucky Charms kind of? No, I, th I think it's, I think so. Leprechauns were a type of fairy and Lou Corpon. Lou is little, you know, Bjog, and then Corpon, little body. They were little bodied beings. Lou Corpon. There was actually, I think in 32 words for field, I think I list maybe about 32 different names for leprechaun. Every community or county had Gankachon, Lyrachon, uh, Knorachon. There's all these different versions, but they all, they were little, just little beings in the landscape. And, you know, I suppose that idea later that they that they owned wealth, they owned gold, they had a pot of gold. But that's just really saying, it's just like gold is was always a source knowledge. of energy, it was a source of glowing, like knowledge. Almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They, exactly. It's just another example. It's a it's an easy, pleasant story to remind us that there is deities, that there's gods in nature, and that you will find them when you're up a lonely byway or up on top of a hill. It's a it's a positive thing. And like when Walt Disney did the um, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, which is, pro which is probably the main story that popularized the idea of the fairy in Irish or American consciousness and world consciousness. Walt Disney came in Ireland with a real serious interest in folklore. 
And he went to Seamus de Largi, who was the head of the Folklore Commission, who had led that whole collection of the 1930s, that is, 30s, that I said, that collected all our, our folklore, which we're so lucky that despite all the changes that have happened in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we have an entire record of what we believe in the 1930s because of Seamus de Largi and the Folklore Commission. Walt Disney heard about this and he came over to Ireland and he said, but when was this, this was just after the war. 39, 41, 42. And every, as soon as he could make it, he made it over and did a whole tour of Ireland to go and see the greatest storytellers that Seamus de Largi had already found. And he collected the stories from them. And he brought back all of this really rare archival material straight from the, ho- the, fo- the, the horse's mouth, straight from the greatest Shanachis, greatest storytellers. And then get his, got his screenwriters to do the, 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 the film. Now, unfortunately, the script of um, Darby O'Gill and the Little people was just bullshit, was shite. But his his ideas, intentions was really was really pure. Jesus, yeah. And now I've never even heard of that. What's it called, Darby? O'Gill Darby O'Gill, O'Gill and the Little People. It's a really cheesy sort of yeah leprechauny story. But a lot of that sort of quaint Irish American idea of the leprechaun came from that movie, from Walt Disney images in that in that movie. But what's mm-hmm. really interesting, we're at this time of need, of urgency, of people we've lost who we are, where we are, and these we're messages. Orphaned. We're orphaned, exactly. In many ways. Yeah, and that's why the elders that I met over, the indigenous people uh, I met in America said, like, you have knowledge, you guys in Ireland. You need to tap into your knowledge. You need to get over your whole hang-ups about post-colonial. You need to stop chasing Berlin or, you know, Hollywood or something and find out who you are, find a way of communicating it and tell it to the world. They said, because they said... We're brown-skinned, they said. We can go on spouting about this knowledge about connection with the land forever. No one will listen to us because we're brown. We're, we're, we're lesser humans. They said, you're white. People listen to white people. You're the, you're the Irish. You're the, that's almost, you know, the commitment side of the blacks of, of Europe. We're the people who are white-skinned but still have that old way of thinking of the world. We've turned our backs on it and we need to, we need to refine it. And, and in, I love that as a and, message. And in the really context, is, it gives hope at a time when we need yeah, it. Yeah. And, and in the context of indigenous elders, so elders, and I'm kind of going, okay, here we are, we're in a land, Ireland, four and a half thousand years old, beautiful kind of, you know, messages of harmony, symbiosis and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, like, is there any, ref, like elders, you know, obviously there's, there's uh, North American elders, there's mm-hmm. elders in the tribes. We don't necessarily have elders in our current culture are there any, in, you know, examples? In yeah, the in your, or? in the, the fairy realms, which yeah. you deal in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not so much fairy realms, know, but no. you, you can have access to different Shanaki and mm-hmm. people with different perspectives and are more yeah. historians and mythologies and legends. And people and, that and, live and how more we, this native or more yeah. indigenous. Are there way? elders in this land, on this island that represent these, that the root where we've come from? Uh-huh. So, um... And first, I'll just say, because I was saying earlier that it, I, we need to be careful when we use the word indigenous. Because, yeah, and I was only using it really No, but I've been using it a lot. So I need to be careful because I think and one definition of indigenous is uh, like if you have your own government, you can't be indigenous. And so we have our own government. So we are definitely not exploited. But and when the native indigenous people in America said to me or in Canada said, we are indigenous. I said, we can't do use that word. We Irish, we wiped out the indigenous people of Argentina. Like w- Ireland was, you know, our biggest impact in South America was in Argentina. There's no, there's no First Nations person left in Argentina because we wiped, we were ruthless. We were the great landowners in Argentina. Ireland? We were, yeah, the we Irish. Were. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the, a lot of like, um, yeah, the capital, what's the capital of Argentina? Buenos, Buenos Aires. Aires. Yeah, there's a lot of, it was founded by a lot of Irish people. A lot of people, um, then we made no impact on the rest of South America. But we were big ranch owners in the north of Argentina and still in Buenos Aires. Um, 
And that's the one place that's anywhere with no Indians, just because we were so efficient on wiping them out. But even in the States and Canada, you know, Irish officials, Irish cops, Irish uh, soldiers were ruthless, you know, and Irish missionaries were even worse about wiping out cultures. So we need to be aware that our, we have done a lot to wipe out indigenous culture around the world. But at the same time, these Creoles are saying, look, you're indigenous, you need to get over your hangups and start using that word, using it aware, using it aware that you are also, you've also have crimes in your hand, but you, you're entitled to it. So as you say, who are the people in Ireland who have this knowledge? For me, one great thing is that the knowledge isn't lost. We're realizing the knowledge, our ancestors realized the knowledge could be lost. So they encoded it into stories and into landscape and into place names. So that if the Druids all were wiped out, and if the Shanachis and the storytellers all were wiped out, there would be a way of finding it again, just going back to the stories. Um, so I don't feel despair that there are no great, you know, lords of wisdom who can pass it down to us, particularly because we're probably reaching a time now where we don't, we don't want to be told by one person, a priest anymore. We want to find intuitively, because at one point I said to the Cree elders, I said, look, we've lost so much. We've lost all of female herbal knowledge and female wisdom. And they looked at me and he says, how would you know? Is it your male? You know, you know nothing, they said. And the minute he said that to me, I had goosebumps all over me because I had heard about, like maybe about six years ago was the first time I heard of Awi Nagat, of this cave in Roscommon, a cave of female transformation. You told us I did. And I did a podcast episode on my um, Almanac of Ireland on it and I have a chapter on my new book. Like, so it's this cave in Roscommon. And uh, I, I'd heard about it like six years ago, that there was a cave where the female goddess were, was found, but I could find nothing in any book. I could find nothing on the internet uh, like five, three, five years ago. And then I was only, when I was writing this book, Listen to Land Speak, about two years ago, I was coming back from Mayo and I stopped. Uh, I knew it was around Rakrohan, which is where Queen Maeve, Queen Maeve who created the valleys with her menstrual flow, her fort is still in Roscommon, just north of, uh, west of Tulsk in County Roscommon. And I was going down every back Bohreen because someone had told me it was around there, but I could never Bohreen find it. Bohreen mean Little Road. Little Road. Just for any yeah. Listening. And finally I found it. You know, it's just a hole in the, gra- in the, it's a hole about the size of a fox's den or a badger's set. You'd never find it. And I will open up, I went in there and anyways, you How said, I've told you that story. It? Luckily, tell us that story again. I want yeah. to. No, uh, luckily, the only reason I found that was because it was a little cul-de-sac, a little Bohreen with a little road. And, you know, interestingly, Bohor, what does Bohor mean? Bohor means a road because of Boh, a cow. Yeah, Everything yeah. in Ireland is based on the cow. What's <laughs> Bohol? Bohol is a boy. Bohol means cow herder. Everything in Ireland and everything in India is based Bukal on the cow. means cow herder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's boy, yeah. that's gas. Because there was no, you know, a child, there was no thing as, thing as childhood. Kids didn't have free time. They were all it working. Works. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, the only reason I found that was because I went down this little laneway and grass growing down the middle and I saw people in North Face and Heli Hansen jackets in the middle of a field, which were obviously tourists in the middle of Roscommon. And it turns out they were on a tour and someone had brought them. One, a local man, t- two local men, Mike and Daniel, in Daniel Corkery, in, um, in, Ros- in Tulsk and Roscommon, decided they were going to open up this, tell people about what the hole was. Like the local community knew where the cave of female transformation was. They've always kept it alive. But no one asked them and they didn't tell anyone. Until the time is right. The energy is arising now. We have a need. All of us seem to have this need to find the information. So the places are coming forward. So that's why when the Cree said to me, um, the Cree elder said to me, you know, you wouldn't know if about the female knowledge. Of course I wouldn't. I was a male. The people who needed to know have always known about this tiny little hole in the wall of a field that you can go down and enter this massive cavernous space under the ground, which was 
as I said, for thousands of years was known as a ritual site. Um, why do you get onto? Yeah, Jeez. so it's like an underground chapel, really. Exactly. Like, to some exactly. So yeah, I can't name you know one or two few great elders um, that will tell us all the information. But what? And, I, and also, I wonder, like, say when we spoke with Bruce Parry on Indigenous Tribes, he spoke about how going back kind of these older tribes, there wasn't this idea of it being a hierarchy, that there was one person that kept the knowledge. It was much more that it was all egalitarian, that mm -hmm. it was all shared and that it was equal, that it was a lot more, there was no hierarchy. Lovely. And that was the way humans lived for thousands of years. And yeah. it's only approximately in the last kind of 3% of, of kind of human existence that we've actually lived this hierarchical way, that there's someone above the others. And I wonder back in these more traditional somewhat quote-unquote indigenous mm -hmm. Irish cultures where they're a lot more egalitarian and that's why there wasn't one elder. Lovely. Um, I, wonder, I wonder. I know. I need to check out that Bruce Parry article, uh, episode. So that was a few weeks ago or a few months that ago? That was like probably a year ago yeah, yeah. or more. But okay. Amazing. Actually, I think I did. I, I'll have to remember. Um, yeah. There's a few things there. S um, yeah. Because first, all at the moment, all of our everything we know about Irish culture, it's all man. It's the Druid. I haven't got into the Druid. And the Druid's man. The king is male. But it seems very likely that we come from a matriarchal culture where it was a female-led culture or maybe just the one that was in pure balance. But we don't see signs of that. A lot of our culture says, says male. But anyway, I want to say, so yeah, we do, as you say, it could have been, a, could have been not a hierarchy, but a shared information. The, but the other thing the Cree elders said to me, they said, they said, you know, you wouldn't know if the female knowledge is has been lost because it'll be there. You are not going to be told. The other thing I said, OK, but there's a lot of knowledge that I think we've lost about our connection with the land and what happened in the land. And they said, fine. They said, you just need to go and find it again. I said, how? They said, you need to go to the sacred sites. You're so lucky in Ireland that you know all the ritual sacred sites. The English tried to, sorry, tried to wipe them out, but they didn't. You need to go there and you need to sit and meditate. And that's intimidating. Basically, they're saying the information is in the land and the land wants you to know it. You just need to sit there and allow it to come in. And I said to him, but how do I know it's, I'm not on an ego trip and not making it all up? And he said, you will do that too. And so we know there's been a lot of people who've been going to the Hill of Ishnach or to Nauth or to Newgrange or to Loch Crew, to some of the many ceremonial sites or to Tlachtka, which is the Hill of Ward. Oh, I could talk to you about Tlachtka for a hill for an hour and a half. But um, <laughs> another massive goddess site, powerful place. But, um, you know, we've had these sort of new agers who, you know, you've known a lot of, I've known a lot of over the years. Um, I've been one. You probably have been them. Going to these places, taking magic mushrooms, believing they know all the answers by going on the land. Often men who are just on their own ego trips. And the, the Cree elders are saying, you need to allow all that happen. You need to allow all of us tune in to what we feel a lot of what we're going to be saying is rubbish is bullshit but the good stuff will stick you know we just need to be tolerant and if there is some celtic goddess chanting new made-up gobbledygook on top of a hill and it seems ridiculous to the rest of us um if it's ridiculous it won't survive the information that needs to come from the land from our ancestors will come to us so it's a time um, it's sort of good that we it's don't have one man the title of the book as well listen yeah to the listen to the land speak It'd be great if I could just tell you Liam O'Wanley has all the answers, you know, which is a, it was a singer from who from the Hothouse Flowers. But no, there's we know that it's in the folklore. We know it's in the land. Well, we it, know it's in the language. It kind of ties in with most spiritual kind of um, practices that mm -hmm. the more we can file stillness within, that we can find the answers. And I yeah. think that's a huge part of it. If we do actually want to listen to the land mm -hmm. speak, we have to find silence within ourselves that we exactly. can actually hear. Yeah, these more yeah. subtle things. Yeah. Here, can, can, I up, can I say one the final thing that is this idea 
in the Shanachas Moor, which I was about to say, in the great collection of our recorded wisdom from long ago, they asked the question, what is the preserving shrine? What is the preserving shrine? In other words, like, how do you preserve an apple? You preserve it in fermented or something. What is the, what is the, how do you preserve? What is the preserving shrine? How do you preserve the accumulated wisdom of mankind? And the answer, easy. It is, uh, it is memory and what is preserved within it. Okay, what is the preserving shrine? Easy, it is memory and what is preserved within it. In other words, the knowledge is in the memory of the druids and the shanachis, the storytellers. Then they ask a question again. What is the preserving shrine? Easy, it is nature and what is preserved within it. So what they're trying to say is that the information that we need from our accumulated wisdom of mankind is in, our, is in memory of those who were trained to keep that memory alive. And the way that they don't forget it is because they preserve it in the landscape, in the nature. They have stories which are rooted in the landscape and the place names. And that's why you can mention any story to me, any great legend of Ireland, of the thousands, of the hundreds of thousands of stories. They're all set in different places. In fact, most of them, like Toriach, Dearmond and Grania, the love story in Dearmond and Grania, is just going from one place to another place to another place. It's a bit like the song lines in Aboriginal culture. You reroute the information in particular locations. And every time you go to that location, either in your mind when the story is being told or when you're on the big walkabout when you're traveling, the, the information in that place comes back to you. So what we need to do is get out into the land, read the stories that, of the old journeys around the land and find the information, the, the kernel of wisdom that is rooted in every single place. And again, the Cree elders, particularly Jerry Saddleback, this very senior Cree elder in Alberta, said that's how he has his information. He has a birth story of his people that takes four months to tell. And the only reason he can tell it without making mistakes is he goes to the landscape or he recreates that landscape and roots the wisdom there. The birth story. It's nearly like yeah, we need to go and write a passage. Exactly. Like a journey, a kind of journey of transformation. What is that journey. what all of us are trying to, all of us are kind of craving, yet most of us can't get, a, you know, let go of the trappings of capitalism and modern life. Yeah, there's so much ahead of us. And... For me at the moment, I am living the perfect unexamined life. I'm doing none of this at the moment. I'm just chasing my tail. You know, we all identify the work that needs to be done. And yet I'm just trying to keep up with <laughs> like we're all working. to inspire. I know I need to stop. I mean, I need to go back and do the work rather than just chasing around, giving talks and things. But yeah. That's good. Oh, but even the, even the topic of the talks. Yeah. On the topic of the talks. Can we speak briefly about bread? Because you're doing a wonderful series and you got to go to the US on a tour and you're talking about going to the West Coast of the US. Imogus Aron. Imogus Aron and exactly. bread. bread and, and I think like we started a sourdough bakery and probably over the last five, six years, I've really fallen in love with the practice of making bread mm. and of where our wheat comes from and how our wheat is grown and how the process of simply flour, water and salt, you can almost bring alchemy into, 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 into a process and through that process, it centers you, it calms you down. You see this metamorphosis as this perfectly caramelized crust comes mm -hmm. out and you eat it and it just brings such presence, such joy, something far greater than the simple components that you used. And I wonder if we could talk briefly about bread. Mm. Yeah. Metaphorically break bread. Yeah, so uh, as you say, our emigs are on, are on exam, this show. So I bake sourdough bread and the audience churn butter. And what I, they're both... I'm using them as metaphors because, you know, we've been talking about some big high concept ideas about language, about yeah. culture. And I mean, I'm aware I can bore the pants off people. So I wanted to bring them down into real nitty gritty elements. And I realized all of this can be conveyed between in, in bread and butter, because as you say, the, the bread is made. I'm using like some flour from the Mosses mills in Bennett's Bridge. Obviously, there's some Canadian French flour for high gluten. 
But uh, moss, the mosses have been milling the, their flour, the grain of their neighbours on both sides of the Nor River in Carlo and Kilkenny for the last, um, since, for, since, for the last seven generations. So 15, in 1501, they built the foundation stones of their mill in the river and they've been milling ever since in the same mill. They've just automated now. So it just shows how long we have been producing food in an entirely harmonious and sustainable way in this landscape. So I can put that grain um, and they're, you know, they're now using some elements of ancient grains that were grown in that area into a bread. I can use ackle sea salt from the, from the sea. I can um, use water from whatever local river or, lo or lake I am doing the show in. It's from the tap. But luckily in Ireland, most of our water does come from the, from the local river or tap. And um, I make this bread that, as you say, then nourishes the people. And then the people themselves churn the butter. And the thing we notice is that when you're baking bread or when you're churning butter, both elements require, there are traditions uh, among both practices that require being aware of the fairies and taking account of the fairies. So we deal with that in this in the show I do as well. So it's just trying to make people aware of these really high concept ideas in a, in a, in a, in a, yeah, a, a sort of an easy, um, more s solid way. And I've been doing the show, I think, for four years. And I brought it, yeah, in the springtime, I brought it, I think, to 18 different cities in America. I started in Mississippi, then went to St. Louis, I went to Pittsburgh, I went to New York, I went up to Toronto, I went to Alberta, I went to Detroit, I went to Chicago, I went to Milwaukee, I went everywhere. What um, an experience. It was phenomenal. And a lot and, of And did you find that you were drawing out like people of Irish heritage and Yeah, a lot of it was to Irish American centers. Um, but otherwise I went to science museums too, the Carnegie Museum, because it's a fascinating idea. Like the uh, the lactobacillus, the, the sourdough I'm using, which is, you know, a mix of different forms of lactobacillus and saccharomyces. It's it, my starter is a, uh, it's about 150 years old. It's, it's, it's your man Chad Roberts starter from oh, Tartine right, Bakery. Right. And, you know, I can tell this. So, so Chad Roberts, about 25 years ago, he saw a painting of a woman. Um, no, actually some boatmen with, with a loaf of bread under their armpit. From a painting from France from about the 1870s. And Chad decides he wants to taste that loaf of bread, the loaf of bread that the blokes are carrying under their arm in the 1870s. And he goes on this pilgrimage to France and Italy to try and find a baker that's been baking continuously from 1870 until today. And he does, he finds it, and he gets some of their starter and he brings it back to San Francisco and he uses it to found the Tartine Bakery, the bakery which created a revolution in sourdough baking in San Francisco whenever 20, 25 years ago. And then about 12 years ago, Doreen Allen invites him to bring to come over to Ballymaloo about 12 years ago, and he brings some with him. And uh, there was a woman called Helen James. She designs things for Dunn stores. She designs nice plates and aprons and bowls. She got some from Chad when he was in Ballymaloo 12 years ago. And I met up with Helen about seven years ago and she gave it to me and I, keep it, I kept it alive. So ever since I've been given it at every show I do, and I've just finished like the 28 shows in a row here in Ireland. I'll be doing another. I'm doing some in where in Bray and Dunleary and Castlebar and then I end. No, the Common, and then I, I'm going to end it for a while. Um, but I give out that. So it just goes all over the world. And what I tell people is, you know, it's a mix of lactobacillus and saccharomyces. But to show people its potency and yet the fact that we don't see it when we're making a loaf of bread, there's this underworld, this magical world happening that we're not aware of. And the best example is that that the lactobacillus is going there. It is utterly transforming the flower. One single bacterium of lactobacillus can expand to the size of planet Earth within two days if given enough food. Like that's just mind-blowing for me. It could take over the whole of Greystones, the whole of Wicklow if it wanted to. And that's really what it wants to do. So it's using those sort of simple concepts to, to, to try and talk about mind-expanding um, ideas. Wow. Yeah. 
That's yeah. some linkage there. That's amazing. Sourdough taking over the world. Exactly. Woo! Yeah. So that's what. So I'll do that show probably in the west coast of America, and then I don't know will I do it again. It's a lot like driving around the country with a whole with my oven and with my tables and with my set and everything, with loads of bags of dough and everything spilling all over the place. Uh, and yeah, it's lost. It's romance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you need a roadshow manager. Is that what you're saying? I do. need someone to drive around, and then you can just swan in there on your bike and your electric bike. That's it. That's it. Well, it was great. In America, I had this great man called T- called Tyson Gerhardt. Tyson Gerhardt from Montana, from Missoula, Montana. He's like a singer and an anarchist punk, and he did all that. He was brilliant, and he he was just he would we just go around the van and listen to the best of traditional music from all over the world, and then I'd just turn up. That was the easy part. But now, having just done whatever twenty-eight dates in Ireland, I'm tired now. I'm tired. Uh, I'm but tired. that was, jeez, wonderful, mm. wonderfully reminding. Like I definitely feel yeah. it's reminded me of the. Connection. And if we're just just to finish with kind of a, some degree of a nugget for someone listening, if we do stop and listen to the land speak, what do you think it says? Mm. The beauty is that it's you know, it's almost in entirely in touch with you as you found. So it says something different to you. Every day. Do you find that like, I now, whenever there's a, I go to a stone circle or any um, sort of really one of these old stone age Neolithic sites in Ireland, in other words, the sites that are from before us, before the Bronze Age people, these are maybe 6,000 years old. I stand at the stone. It's always, for me, it's always a, a, some really reassuring message of just, you're on the right path or relax or just take it easy or calm. Or sometimes it just says, no, wake up. So I find every day, it's almost, it's, what is that? An adaptogen. It's not the word, an adaptogen. Yeah, it's a different message. Yeah. The message you need to hear. Yeah, exactly. For that moment. Yeah. And we know, we know we'll always feel better. We know if we breathe and swim or breathe and walk or breathe and run or just breathe and touch the earth. It's yeah, going to calm being us. connected with nurture. And we know, at least earth. I know, I'm not doing it enough, you know. Yeah, good reminder. Yeah. Good mm-hmm. note to land the ship. Wonderful. So, new book, Listen to the Land Speak. It's beautiful. Is, is it doing as well as 32 Feels? I can say well now received. it is. Yeah, it, it, I, the first few weeks it's that lovely uh, sensitiveness because you know I'm really and proud of the book. fear because you're putting something out. Exactly. Yeah, but you don't, I don't, I don't know how people are going to like it but already it's now been out, it's now been out like six, seven weeks and people are loving it. It's so great. I didn't know had I gone too far in the whole woo-woo description this time because basically I'm saying the whole of land, the land is a female goddess. You will see her everywhere in every corner. There's, she has messages she wants to give us that, are, that don't require any big woo-woo thinking. It actually, it's just there in the stories, in the names, in the, in the appearance of the landscape. And luckily, people do seem to be going for it. Wonderful. You're a breath of fresh air, Monko. Thank you so much. So I, yeah. I was, I'd be number one the first two weeks, but then bloody Bono. What's going to happen now? Bono will probably take over. He'll be number one with his great new uh, biography. Oh, well, that'd be a, a good man to pass the mantle to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a worthy, a worthy Callum, you know, exactly. custodian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, thanks well again. Done, Monk. You're glorious. Thank you. I love chatting with Monk on. It's just so refreshing. And so I kind of feel like running through the meadow, singing Irish, uh, looking Mitchell, hang out with the fairies. That's what I feel like. Yeah, I feel like going on a fairy hunt in a positive way. And I'm looking forward to, we're going to go see his Imogs Aron show, hopefully um, on Friday. Which is Bread and Butter Show. Oh, cool. We're going yeah. this Friday. Brilliant. Uh, anyway, hope you really loved that. Uh, do check him out if you're curious about his books. His books are wonderful. I, I just, I love it. And if you ever get about. the opportunity to hang out with him, he's a magical creature. Yeah, really, really is. is. Creature being, that's a, a word of infect- affection rather than anything else. Anyway, we're going to go now. Just want to say thanks for your attention. We love that you listen to this podcast. We really do. If you're interested in this one, we've got tons 
Bones. We've got nearly a hundred other episodes covering all aspects of health and curiosity and life and sex and community and health and sex. Sorry, said sex in community. And <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're going to go now. Thanks. Bye. 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 Bye